From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. We're back and happy to be here. My name is Andrea Miller and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. Taking our break gave us an opportunity to practice some self-care and to spend time reconnecting to the people and places that make up our communities. As you listen to our stories this week, we hope you take a moment to do the same. Listeners, it's been a minute! As you may have noticed, we took a bit of a break over the past month to re-energize and start working away on brand new episodes for you. That being said, a lot went down in the news while we were away. So this week, we're bringing you a roundup of the past month's environmental news. First up, we have Elizabeth Dowdell talking about energy headlines in Alberta. On September 22nd, 2020, news outlets, including The Globe and Mail, CBC, and Western Standard, announced that the government of Alberta would be liquidating the Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction Fund, more commonly known as TIER. Essentially, TIER is the industry version of the carbon tax, but these payments are made to the provincial instead of federal government and only apply to large industrial emitters, blasting 100,000 tons of CO2 equivalent or more annually into the atmosphere. Now the TIER fund has been referred to as Alberta's environmental piggy bank and revenues are intended to be spent on Alberta-based technologies that reduce carbon emissions, improve oil sands extraction, and support carbon capture utilization and storage. The first $100 million the fund generates and 50% of every dollar after that is to be spent on these emissions reduction activities. But past this cap, the funds have been earmarked for deficit reduction and $20 million of the Energy War Room's annual $30 million budget. According to Minister of Environment and Parks, Jason Nixon, the fund was cashed in now to support both the province's economic recovery and environmental obligations during the pandemic. So how much money was in the piggy bank? And what is the Alberta government spending it on? $750 million is being liquidated. The total value of the fund and with additional investment expected from industry and other sectors, a total investment of $1.9 billion is projected. What we'll be getting in return for the money is a little less clear. The short answer and most popular narrative seems to be that this money will create jobs between 3,400 and 8,700, depending on which investment figure you consider. The long answer, in my opinion, is a little more complicated. But first, let's break down where the money is going, so far. Emissions Reduction Alberta will retain some of this funding, but I couldn't find much detail. I do know that $80 million will be spent on a new Industrial Energy Efficiency and Carbon Capture Utilization Grant Program, which will cover up to 75% of the cost, 
to a max of $20 million to make facility improvements for those same large emitters who paid into the tier fund or would be eligible to do so. On September 25th, $52 million was allocated to projects that reduce methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Of that total, 25 million will fund the Methane Technology Implementation Program, uh, the MTIP, managed by Carbon Connect International, which is headquartered in Calgary, Alberta. This fund will cover the cost of new equipment up to 50% or a max of $1 million for companies to reduce methane emissions. A baseline and reduction opportunity assessment program will get $10 million to help small and medium-sized operators figure out their on-site methane emissions and if they meet regulations. While $17 million will be spent on a fugitive emissions management program to pay for research that will help oil and gas operators figure out where they are leaking methane and repair it. And just last week on October 8th, news came that $53 million will be spent on flood mitigation. This breaks down into 3.5 million to the existing watershed resilience and restoration program, 4.5 million to be shared between the rural municipalities of Alberta and Alberta Municipalities Association for Climate Change Adaptation, and 45 million to the Alberta Community Resilience Program. 6.8 million of this resilience funding uh, will be spent on flood protection for the Edmonton water treatment plants. In Minister Nixon's press release, he specifically spoke to the possibility of another once-in-a-lifetime event like the flood of 1915. Check out our River Valley History Part 1 to hear a little story about how the rushing waters of the North Saskatchewan changed the city of Edmonton for good. Now if you add up all those millions, uh, so five and one and three is... Um, yeah, you'll find about $185 million in public funding announcements for municipalities and industry. But what about the other $560 million and that total of $1.9 billion that industry and other sectors are supposed to be adding to? We'll keep an ear out and let you know what happens with the rest of our environmental piggy bank in this ongoing story. In the meantime, these funding announcements have met with some mixed reception. The Western Standard has made it clear in their reporting that the provincial government's decision to liquidate the tier fund is essentially a, quote, $750 million corporate welfare program, end quote. While carbon capture and storage technologies are being recognized as integral to climate change mitigation, this kind of targeted investment in the oil and gas sector has me a little bit suspect. It feels more like a blank check to maintain or even increase emissions instead of innovating for cleaner and greener energy. And finally, I can't help but wonder what might happen if investments in green technology and climate change adaptation were a part of the government's primary economic diversification strategy, rather than what feels like a Hail Mary following repeated and deep economic hits to the province's oil and gas sector. While this funding means good news for a number of Alberta energy businesses and some other community organizations, it would be wrong to suggest liquidating the tier fund puts the province on a path to sunny days in terms of its environmental or financial health. On October 4th, an energy headline from the Globe and Mail highlights Alberta's precarious environmental and financial situation by drawing attention to the growing liability of orphaned wells. As of October 1st, the Orphan Well Association, 
that is the industry funded and provincially regulated entity that adopts and reclaims abandoned oil and gas infrastructure, had just over 10,000 sites on its books. Of those, 900 had been issued a reclamation certificate and over 3,500 were in the process of cleanup. So that's good news. The bad news is an estimated 12,000 new oil and gas sites are at risk of defaulting to the association and thus becoming at least partially a public liability. Now in the past year, the province has introduced new rules to plug loopholes in legislation so that fewer wells, pipelines, or other facilities fall into the hands of the Orphan Well Association. But critics note that there are still no mandatory timelines on when reclamation must begin, and there is no requirement for full security. And that is the money a company needs to put up to cover the full cost of reclamation as a deposit before a new project begins. An Alberta Energy Regulator spokesman notes that the potential 12,000 sites are not all likely to fall to the Orphan Well Association. But this figure does indicate the impact recent economic shocks have had on the oil and gas industry. To crunch the numbers like we did for the tier fund, there are a few things you should know. The Orphan Well Association is primarily funded through levies on industry, but the size of this fund, or what we could call our reclamation piggy bank, hasn't really kept up with costs. Recent estimates put the total security the association holds at $226 million, while the total liability of the entire oil and gas industry is closer to $2.9 billion. Yes, million and billion. The federal government recently made a $1 billion of funding available to the province for environmental cleanup, and much of this money will be used by receivers of different insolvent or bankrupt oil and gas businesses to reclaim sites before they make it to the association. However, the association is having a bit of a cash flow problem and has borrowed combined over $535 million from the NDP, UCP, and federal government in the last four years. This money has helped the association do its work faster cleaning up about 2,000 wells last year compared to a yearly average of just 300. But given the difference between the money in the bank and the potential costs, the public is likely to have to dig into their purse to pay for oil and gas remediation across the province. And what these two stories have in common is a look at where the money is coming from for environmental cleanup and improvements in the Alberta energy industry. Are we seeing the polluter pay principle in practice? or are we handing out our public money as corporate welfare? I'll send it back to Andrea for our next story from the news. Thanks, Elizabeth. Next, here's Hannah Cunningham talking about a recent change made to Alberta's fish and wildlife officers. On October 1st, it was announced that Alberta's Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Branch will now operate under the Alberta Sheriffs, and that Fish and Wildlife Officers will now work under the title of Alberta Sheriffs Conservation Services. This move was made following the United Conservative Parties, or UCP's, effort to increase resources available to fight rural crime. This merge of organizations was hinted at last fall, 
when Premier Jason Kenney announced that the provincial government would be changing the roles of 400 peace officers, including the fish and wildlife officers, traffic sheriffs, and members of the commercial vehicle enforcement branch. Mike Dempsey of the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees is concerned that the 115 conservation officers are not seeing increased pay for the added danger that they will face when called on to be first responders. According to Dempsey, the provincial government has found money to buy new computers, office equipment, training, and retrofitting of vehicles, but no increase in pay for those who will be taking on more dangerous work. The creation of this kind of rural enforcement team comes during a time where tensions between the public and police organizations are high. Violent acts by police against Black, Indigenous, and people of color are being witnessed and protested around the world, and the systemic racism embedded in the past and present of law enforcement is becoming more front-page news. This increase of policing in rural Alberta has critics concerned about how and against who this power will be used. Remembering the fate of Colton Bushi, a 22-year-old man from the Red Pheasant First Nation who was fatally shot on a farm in Saskatchewan in 2016, a case where the landowner, Gerald Stanley, was acquitted of his second-degree murder charge. In the announcement of the change on social media, the newly named Alberta Sheriff's Conservation Services stated that the change was only for the name and that their mandate to protect and conserve wildlife is the same. However, the buying of extra body armor and firearms along with the provincial government's plan to have various types of peace officers assist with emergency response makes this seem like more than just a name switch. According to a CBC article published on October 6th, Alberta Justice has not been available for comment. Thanks for that, Hannah. You're listening to Terra Informa a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. Now we'll hear from Sonic Patel talking about a new rail project running from northern Alberta to Alaska. Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. On Friday, September 25th, President of the United States of America, Donald Trump, announced that he was issuing a presidential permit for the Alaska to Alberta cross-border rail project. This project is a 2,570-kilometer railway from Fort McMurray in northern Alberta through the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, and terminating in Anchorage, Alaska. The project is headed by the Alaska to Alberta Development Corporation, a corporate entity established specifically to construct the railway. The railway is designed to move cargo between the countries and provide access for Canadian resources to the global market via ports in Alaska. The Alaska to Alberta, or A2A line, would move goods like oil, as well as grain, ore, and others. The project is expected to cost over $22 billion Canadian, over two-thirds of which will be spent in Canada. The project is privately owned by the founder of A2A, Sean McOcean, and will seek investment from other investors, as well as government grants and loan guarantees to provide the capital needed to develop the project. The presidential approval is the first step of acquiring development approval in the United States. The project will then go through a review process in the U.S. to get the necessary licenses from the Surface Transportation Board and the National Environmental Protection Act, as well as state approvals. 
In Canada, the project first needs to go through an environmental impact assessment process, where the ecosystem, economic, and social impacts of the project will be considered against the merits of it. The project will need necessary approvals by the federal and provincial governments. The A2A company stated the project would mean thousands of jobs for Canadians and provide a new and more efficient route for access to Pacific markets. The project website also notes the railway design aims to reduce fuel consumption, minimize environmental impacts, and improve safety. Quote, state-of-the-art technologies are to be used to forecast mechanical issues and to safely handle the cargo. The website also claims that infrastructure elements like bridges, culverts, and tunnels will meet modern environmental and operational standards. A spokesperson for the Office of the Premier expressed Alberta government's support for the news, claiming the project would be a trade corridor that can unlock new markets for Alberta's products. This is not an uncommon talking point for the Alberta government, who supported the Trans Mountain Expansion Project and other pipeline projects as necessary to give Alberta products access to foreign markets via ocean ports. In fact, in 2015, the Alberta government paid for a feasibility study for a railway from Alberta to Alaska. While moving oil is likely a main motivation for the project, railways do allow for greater flexibility than pipelines, which are essentially restricted to only moving fluids. While the railway may bring big economic advantages, environmental and social aspects are also concerns. Railways can fragment habitats, meaning that populations of the same species can get isolated on either side of the tracks, resulting in reduced genetic diversity among a species. Issues like collisions, noise, and other pollutions are also likely to be discussed in the environmental impact assessments. Also of consideration is that the tracks may pass over traditional territories. Canadian president of A2A Rail Canada, J.P. Gladue, stated the company can look at alternatives if any group does not want the railway over their traditional lands. Some Indigenous groups have already been consulted, although more discussions are still to come. How well the environmental impact assessments and negotiations will respect traditional knowledge and land rights remains to be seen in the approval process. Like many projects that seek Indigenous approval, President of A2A Rail Canada encouraged Indigenous ownership of the railway, with 49% of the project's equity available for purchase. This story is still in its infancy, as more information about the environmental impact of the railway comes to light in the impact assessment process, we'll keep you posted right here on Terra Informa. For our next story, Sonic Patel will give us a rundown on a big decision made by the Royal Bank of Canada regarding the funding of oil and gas development in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. In this next story, we talk about a major decision by the Royal Bank of Canada, or RBC, to refuse to fund any oil and gas development in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR, in Alaska. The decision was announced on Friday, October 2nd, in a set of updated policy guidelines, stating that, due to its particular ecological and social significance and vulnerability, RBC will not provide direct financing for any project or transaction that involves exploration or development in the ANWR. The Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is the largest national wildlife refuge site in the United States, at almost 80,000 square kilometers. 
The refuge is home to species like polar bears, moose, caribou, wolves, grizzly bears, lynx, black bears, eagles, and several migratory birds. The region supports a greater variety of plant and animal life than any other protected area in the Arctic Circle. The United States National Park Service recommended that the untouched areas in the northeastern region of Alaska should be protected for research and nature in 1956. The region first became a protected area in 1960. However, debates about whether or not the area should be drilled for oil have been discussed for decades. The ANWR may hold between 1 and 2 billion cubic meters of oil. And there have been debates about the trade-off between natural impacts like wildlife loss and economic returns of accessing this oil. There are also concerns about impacts to indigenous groups that live with and rely on the wildlife in the area. The current United States of America government appears to have decided that environmental impacts are an acceptable trade-off for the economic value that can be generated in the area. Earlier this year, the United States administration, under President Trump, finalized a plan to open up part of the refuge to oil and gas development along the coastal plain that holds significant amounts of oil, but is also home to sensitive wildlife. The Department of the Interior is preparing to auction off drilling leases, with the Interior Secretary stating that there could be a lease sale by the end of the year. President Trump has centered Arctic drilling as a key part of his government's platform to expand the United States of America's domestic fossil fuel production. This decision is not uncharacteristic of a Republican leader, as the Reagan administration recommended drilling in 1987, but was unable to pass a bill. The decision was well met by the Alaskan government, who emphasized the economic and employment importance of the oil industry in the state. However, the decision was met with outrage and opposition from some environmental organizations. Concerns stem both from the issue of extracting more fossil fuels that will likely be burned and contributing to climate change, as well as worries about harm to vulnerable species in the area, species that are already struggling with the impacts of climate change. Among these is the porcupine caribou, who use the coastal plains area for calving or to birth their young. While an environmental impact assessment was conducted by the Department of the Interior, some environmentalists have criticized the review as insufficient, failing to adequately forecast wildlife impacts and underplaying climate change impacts by claiming Alaskan oil would displace production from other U.S. locations, and thus would have a minimal impact on greenhouse gas emissions in the country. Alongside indigenous groups in the area, a number of environmental groups are expected to file lawsuits to try and block lease sales. Opposition from and discussions with environmental groups and concerns about public backlash have prompted major American banks, including JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, to state that they would not directly finance any oil and gas drilling in the area. Alongside the RBC's commitment to not fund oil and gas development in the ANWR, the RBC is also restricting financing to coal plants, coal mines, and is providing enhanced due diligence to financing energy development in the Arctic. The effects of these statements makes it riskier for energy companies to develop in the area. RBC and other major banks do assess the environmental and social liability of the projects they finance in order to protect their returns, reputation, and minimize legal risk. And as more banks announce their intention to not fund projects in the ANWR, 
it may encourage other funders to similarly avoid the area. While the RBC's decision may be a step in the right direction, a report by the Rainforest Action Network from earlier this year found that the RBC is still the largest funder of fossil fuel development in Canada. This decision is likely economically driven, made to preserve reputation and manage liabilities in these banks' respective portfolios. However, this is still a positive direction, one where banks acknowledge the social and economic risks of continuing to invest in fossil fuel projects in sensitive ecosystems. As social, economic, and political consequences of fossil fuel projects increase, banks may continue to divest in these kinds of developments. And in the capitalistic societies of North America, a loss of funding sources is one of the most effective ways to stop environmentally harmful fossil fuel projects. Whether these policies from these banks will have any impact on development in the ANWR remains to be seen, as the lease sales are still ongoing. As this story continues to develop, we'll keep you in the know, right here on Terra Informa. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. Now for our last news story, let's end on a high note with Charlotte Thomason talking about, wait for it, singing dogs. Our next story takes us to the highlands of Papua New Guinea, where the highland wild dog roams. This rare, elusive pack of dogs has only been photographed three times in the past 40 years. Due to their distinct whale-like howl, researchers wondered whether the highland wild dog was actually a population descended from the New Guinea singing dog, once found in the lowlands of New Guinea, but presumed to be extinct in the wild. In 2018, researchers were able to collect DNA samples from the highland wild dogs and compare their genetic makeup to the singing dogs in captivity. And now, the results are in. The highland wild dog population is most likely a close genetic relative to the singing dog. There is still some debate as to whether the wild dog descended from the singing dog, as the lower genetic diversity of the singing dogs in captivity is most likely due to their inbreeding because of their small population. The good news is, this means that the highland wild dog can potentially be used in conservation efforts for singing dog populations helping to diversify the gene pool and rebuild the population. The highland wild dog is also distinct in understanding canid evolution. As founder of the New Guinea Highland Wild Dog Foundation, James McIntyre puts it, quote, The highland wild dog is likely the best living canid example available to scientists outside the fossil record predating human agriculture and representing a critical missing link species having evolved little and more importantly free from selective breeding influences imposed by humans since the time before the dawn of agriculture. It is also the largest and only apex predator on the whole of New Guinea. Further study is not only key to gauging the health and fitness of the ecosystem these dogs inhabit, but vital to understanding canid and human genetics, co-migration and co-evolution. To unlock the secrets of the highland wild dog is to better understand ourselves and our own story." End quote. 
Now, let's hear the howling chorus of the New Guinea Singing Dogs, recorded by Janice Kohler-Matznick at the New Guinea Singing Dog Conservation Society. Thanks for that, Charlotte. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Andrea Miller. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of wonderful volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Catch you next week, right here, on Terra Informa.